Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Hardcore Listing Podcast. What's up, folks? That voice you hear there, that's Christopher Glasson. And the other voice you hear, uh, the one with the lisp, is Stuart Roy Whiffin. Hello. We're recording this intro the day after we recorded the podcast. We're yes. sitting in my car, in a car park, looking like a couple of... Um, dangerous loners. That's what I was going to say. Dangerous dangerous duet. Yeah, yeah. Today's Doggers po- with attitude. Doggers with attitude. <laughs> <laughs> Today's podcast um, is, um, I was going to say, is a funny one. Um, but it's not funny in the sense of ha ha. It's more funny in the sense that we barely talk in it. Yeah. Um, because um, because of the guest and the guest story, um, we kind of sat there open mouthed. I think would be the best way to describe absolutely. it. Absolutely, absolutely. It was um, the, the guest is a gentleman called Gary Hayes, who um, you probably don't know who he is. Um, he's certainly not a, a celebrity as such, but Gary. Uh, runs a charity uh, set up from his on on the back of his experiences, um, and his charity is called uh, PTSD nine nine nine. And it's the next couple of hours of this podcast you're going to hear. We we sort of said it, it would have been gratuitous to have said top five facts about you know post traumatic stress disorder mm. because it's you know it's, it sounds like we're making light of it um, obviously we're not so this podcast is basically Gary's story and Gary's story about those that have been in and around him that have been impacted um, either by the same um, PTSD or as 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 a result of being a friend or, or a loved one of Gary's and, and the effect that he's suffering has had on them um, and it's it's pretty intense right yeah, it is, it is pretty intense. He, Gary's a, a lovely bloke. Um, you can tell um, just from how passionately he talks about this, how much it means to him and how much it means to help others who have been in his situation. And we hear about his story, about how his career has fallen, how it's fallen, like he's gone through the different phases. Um, from the military to the yeah. transport police, from close protection with the royals yeah. and some life. Yeah, it is. And it's just mad to hear. And even after the, the podcast, we talked and, 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 and we spoke a bit more, uh, we got into some more details that maybe we didn't think was appropriate for a, a podcast. And it, But they were absolute shocking things we heard. I make no mistake, you're going to hear some very yeah. shocking things in the next yeah. the next couple of hours. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very, very very um, uncomfortable ride that Gary's been on. Yeah, for sure. So um, it's a bit more of a serious one this, but yeah. time. But uh, you know, it's it's it, 
we didn't want to change the mood. We 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 wanted to keep it earnest and and uh, and, and and quite serious and um and i hope you guys enjoy it it's Absolutely. uh you know it's, it's here we want to raise raise awareness for the, for um for gary's uh charity ptsd 999 and you'll see all the and, links um, to, to to that on, on all the social media postings and on any artwork accompanying this podcast so do go over there and have a look and, yes. and share a bit of love that and way and share some love there because there won't be top five yeah it's things for you to share here it's more exactly. sharing about the course so yeah well like shout out to our sponsors love beer and um our guys over at bang boom yeah um thanks to our producer 76 for doing this um thanks to brad acton uh for any video artwork you may see and john harris for any artwork big mm-hmm. love to the distraction pieces network and should we get on with it yeah let's crack on enjoy please enjoy our quality with gary hayes it's a drunken soiree in the within. Chris and Stu present Our Core Listing, the podcast. We're recording. Yeah. Welcome to Our Core Listing. How is Welcome. everybody? You good? You good? I'm, I'm all right, mate. Thanks. I just had a... Um, I've been eating really healthy. Right. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Lovely. Great then, stuff. Um, Burping then, uh, straight in the mic. And then... Um, then I've had a jerk chicken burger from McDonald's. How was that? Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. McDonald's aren't sponsoring us this week. <laughs> it smells good, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is oh, this right. is um the first time in what, maybe three, four about three weeks since we've had uh, a guest in here. Ah, oh, guest, yes. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Last one was last week's release, which was B Ducks. Yeah. That came out last <clears> week. So we've got um We've got a great guest this evening. It was introduced to us by a mutual friend, Mark yep. Watts of White Room Studios. Let's big up his studio while uh, we're, we're chatting we away. And um, today's guest, is, it's, it's a different one, really. It's, it's quite a, a strange one. Well, I, I'll tell you what, before I do anything, um, I'll introduce today's guest, which is uh, Gary Hayes. How you doing? Very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Um, Gary, you've come here today for, for two, well, to, basically to talk about your charity. Yep. And so your charity's called? It's PTSD 999. Okay. So that's based on post-traumatic stress? Post-traumatic stress, stress, yeah, and it's for emergency services. Um, Back in 2014, um, I lost my job as a police officer with the British Transport Police, excuse me, um, due to chronic PTSD. Um, I went undiagnosed for possibly almost eight years. and my PTSD goes back to the stuff that I did during the London bombings or the aftermath of the London bombings. Right. Uh, long and short, um, clearly as a police officer and any member of the emergency services, um, you're dealing on a daily basis with traumatic events. And the brain's a very clever bit of kit. And when you're dealing with trauma, the brain will put all those nasty visions and thoughts that you've dealt with into a, let's just use a filing cabinet as a yeah. Yeah. as a point of reference. And it just all gets shoved in there. Nothing's put in there sort of tidily or anything no. like that. Um, and then everything else is put away cleanly. So you remember what you did two minutes ago, but the brain will try and stop you from remembering what you've just seen right. and stuff like that. Okay. So I dealt with, I would suggest, well over a good couple of hundred fatalities on the railway and other incidences as well, you know, stabbings, etc. Um, and you just get on with it because it's your job. 
Yeah. And you was a serviceman as well. Yeah, I was yeah. in the army back in the in the mid eighties. Uh, served with the Royal Green Jackets, um, and I sort of when I left that, I got married, and my wife uh, was in the Met Police. Well, she was going into the Met Police when we met back in the late eighties, I think it was, and yeah, she her career um, lasted thirty years, um, and she dealt with child protection issues. She did the well, normal yeah. stuff. Um, as a Bobby on the beat learning your trade as it were but then she specialised went into the sort of child offences and stuff like that so you can imagine the catalogue of stuff that she's seen and dealt with Um, and you know likewise when people think of post-traumatic stress we instantly think of our servicemen and women straight away you know um, and quite clearly and rightly when we see our boys and girls coming back from theatre Minus limbs, you know, terrible, life-changing injuries. Everyone associates their mental state at that time almost immediately with post-traumatic stress. When you see the men and women who've come back from theatre with all their faculties, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. nobody really thinks there's anything wrong because yeah. we can't see what's going As on inside outside, our head. You just yeah. think they're yeah. home and safe, they're happy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, for me... And I guess all the other guys in the, in the emergency services, we know that we're going to come across some some nasty stuff, mm-hmm. and in some cases, some absolutely dreadful yeah. stuff. Yeah. And we accept that, but when you're um, continually dealing with traumatic events, this is when the problems start. Yeah. So, throughout the duration of this podcast what we do is we'll try and sort of anchor it with a few points yep. as some facts about post-traumatic stress yeah. disorder um d- just to sort of start really like how, how, how would you define it what what is you know if it's definable and this you know it's probably one of the biggest things about post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress as it's sort of more known as now um it's probably one of the most highly contested um, medical sort of diagnosis because it's so hard to, to get that diagnosis because, yeah. you know, as as we start going through sort of like the, the sort of top five, as it were, yeah. post-traumatic stress isn't an immediate thing. You could deal with something um, and clearly it could be quite nasty. Um, just for instance, say the stuff that I was dealing with in the uh, mortuary after the 2005 bombings. I was part of a team um, to help identify all the victims oh. and what was left of the bombers. Bloody hell. And so you was in the ambulance service then? No, I was a British Transport Police officer. Right, okay. uh, and what it was, um, basically after the bombings, clearly everything went a bit nuts. And we got a major incident. So what we had to do well, not me specifically, but the emergency services and the anti-terrorism command. Um, I was part of our anti-terrorism team at the time. Um, With each bomb location site, however you want to describe it, we had to set up four different pods. There was was like four different sites for the sort of bombings, etc. So we never had, and I I can't remember anything other than, say, the the bombings with the IRA, Mm -hmm where we've actually had to establish a temporary mortuary to deal with the fatalities, yeah. body parts, the forensic side of it was incredible. Um, so we've got this set up, we've got the four pods. So 
because I was in that squaddy, for some bizarre reason, they thought it was acceptable to send me to, to the Moultrie. To deal with that? Yeah, because they just think, oh, because you're a squaddy, you've been in you've the infantry, seen it you've seen it, been, you know, been there. You'll be fine to deal with it. Yeah. Another day um, in the office. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and for me, I, I sort of questioned it. But it was like, you know, I just don't get the connection between being an ex-serviceman mm. and going to the Moultrie. I went, well, we need a sergeant down there. I said, well, I'm not a sergeant. I went, congratulations. I was promoted in the field. Um, and we need you to run one of the teams down there because the people that were going down there weren't lasting because what they were dealing with was absolute... It was horrific. Yeah. Now, just taking that back a wee bit, when we talk about post-traumatic stress and how it can manifest itself, my wife at the time had been heavily pregnant with our third son. And thankfully, a little sod come about a week and a half, two weeks early. Had he not, she would have been on the Orgate train that got blown up. We we oh. married that well, we, we got that down to within minutes and it's we both concluded that that was probably where she would have been because she was a police officer at Holborn Police Station at yeah. the time. So that was bearing on my mind and clearly, you know, seeing the the effects, the the bomb blasts on the on the victims. You know, the victims have been down in some of them tunnels three, four days. And if you remember back then, we had a really hot summer, as we've yeah, just experienced. Yeah. So decomposition was quite rapid. Right. Um, so the sensory overload. Oh, big time. You know, I, I dealt with people under trains and stuff, don't get me wrong. Um, yeah, that is a nasty old business in itself. Yeah. However, to get bodies coming to you um, in the manner that they were, and we never had proper refrigeration, freezers. So we were putting these pods that we had, unfortunately, whilst they were cool, they weren't really cool no. enough to stop or slow down the decomposition sure. process. So you can imagine when you open a bag, you're basically with some of the people. Is, is there any way to, to, to combat against the sort of like, because I, I can't imagine that the smell no. must be absolutely, is there, no, is there nothing they could put under your nose? or anything? <laughs> just, All this uh, stuff with Vicks and all that. I don't, I, no, I mean, no, I, it, I, honestly, it, I don't know, this is me just asking. No, no, it's, no it's a good question. Um, it's, the smell's there, it, yeah. it will never go. I could um, go anywhere, I, you know, I walk past a butcher's shop and I'll get a whiff really? of that and I'll be sick. Or I'll think I'm going to be sick because yeah. it takes me back it takes to you back not necessarily there, but other mortuaries yeah. and, and dead bodies and stuff. And my old partner, bless him, we, we used to kill ourselves laughing. We'd go out on jobs and whatever, and we might have had a fatality the day before. And clearly, you change your kit and all that. Yeah. And he goes, you know, "Can you smell that?" I'm like, "What are you on about?" He said, "That smell." Mm-hmm. What smell? And again, because I didn't understand post-traumatic stress and how it manifests itself, yeah. I would start laughing. Now, only back in the summer of this year, we were at a friend's barbecue. And he said the same thing to me. Now, he's still in the police. Yeah. And do you know what? When he said it, I try not to think about it, but I've got to go. I said, I can't yeah. stay. Um, yeah. We both, and you know, I lived across the road from this guy's party. Yeah. So that's where we went. Um, because we both were sort of, dare I say, re-experiencing Jeez. a trauma. So... With the mortuary stuff, yeah, there, there was nothing to prepare you for that. And all we did was, and bearing in mind, I had a team to look after as well, so you put yourself on the back burner a wee bit yeah. and you're concentrating on your team. So with everything that we dealt with in there, my focus was looking after my team, making sure yeah. they were all yeah. right. And you just got on with it. What, yeah. what point yeah. did you start 
did it start creeping in to you then? Um, when did you start? When did the say maybe the subconscious or whatever start like making you process it? Once the sort of the stress of the situation was over and everyone was because you know. I, I mean I, just to, to interject a little bit there as well like because for, for me like just taking it to a more a, a personal level for for something that I can relate to saying mm. the powers in comparison mm. but you know if I see a I work in the nightclubs, and if I see yeah. like a, a brutal fight outside a club, yeah. and and something where I have to involve myself in, I'll get home, and I can't sleep, and I'm I'm laying yeah, yeah. there, and my heart's still racing, yeah. and I'm trying to, and and that will take me a bit of time, and I normally I'll have a glass of wine or something yeah. like that to kind of yeah. just try and calm myself yeah. down and go to bed. What was that like coming home that night? Like you know, before you know, before sorry, you're up there, Chris, but before <laughs> before it creeps in to like how it started to creep in, how, like initially that 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 night, um, how, how how did you sort so of try to digest what what was going on? I think with with that question, um, so I was coming home from where the temporary mortuary was at the honourable honourable artillery company, just at the other end of Shoreditch, and it was quite funny in some respects because. You know, I've left all that mess behind after working in those conditions for 14, 15 hours a day, which we did in the early early phases. And I guess because I'd had the benefit of experience dealing with, you know, people trapped under trains or, you know, through suicide, you know, whether it be on the underground or the main line, and, and they're two different sort of entities, I was used to it. But this is, again, where you, you have to ask yourself... What's normal to one person is certainly not normal to someone mm. else. So in that respect, you know, I could understand why some of the people that were, were going to the mortuary couldn't hack it. And that, you know, it doesn't deflect on them as being good no. human beings or coppers or whatever else. I just sort of closed my mind to it. And it, you know, I personally didn't make a personal connection with the, with the deceased. Mm. Some people do. So... You know, going home, my focus was going home to a new baby, mm. my two other little fellas at the time, and obviously making sure the wife was okay. But listening to people being people on the train going home, all cussing and cursing about the emergency services this, the emergency services that, the trains are all shit because of the bombings, and you know, they need to get home. And it just bizarrely made. My day's experience, and I was there for nearly eight weeks at the end, I think, pale into insignificance because I found it a little bit humorous yeah. listening to people whinging. Yeah. And I was sort of like, do you know, if you'd have just spent two seconds near yeah. the place where I've worked, because the smell was horrific, and I kid you not, it was awful. Um, you know, you might wind your neck in a bit and, and choose to be a bit more... How can I put it? Delicate with what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. You know. So I tried not to, to get too focused on what we were doing. Um, and probably later on I'll explain where my PTSD comes from. Um, you know, because I needed to get home. I needed to give the wife some damn time. Um, and my focus would then be the kids and a new one. So I would forget about what I'd done. Yeah. But simply, I hadn't forgotten about it. I'd put it in that filing cabinet with all the other mess just to be filed away, because I couldn't tell my wife what I'd been doing that day. Yeah. Because it was horrible. No, of course. You know. Um, and with post-traumatic stress, 
post-traumatic stress disorder. It doesn't necessarily manifest itself straight away. So what you were saying about being in a fight or seeing something like that happen, again, that's a normal reaction. Um, and you know, you know, fight or flight thing kicks yeah, in. Yeah. And then when you've come away from witnessing that, that could be for you the most traumatic thing you've ever seen mm. in your life. Because again, what's normal for you yeah, of course. might not be normal for someone else and, and vice versa. But you've experienced that bit of anxiety, that that rush of adrenaline, and you're thinking, Jesus Christ, if this goes tits up, you know, what do I do? How do I react to it? Mm. Or do you throw yourself in there and get involved? Yeah. Or do you do the sensible thing and let the bouncers get in? Because that's yeah, what you yeah, get paid yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, of course. But again, that's something that you, not necessarily that night, two days after, a week after, think about. But you could just pick up a newspaper. And that might trigger that thought again. And this is where sort of like the PTSD starts coming into its own. And PTSD is often misdiagnosed because it can take so long for it to, you know, show the signs and symptoms, which mm. there are many um, variants of. And it's often misdiagnosed as depression and stuff like that. Yeah. Because it's such a difficult thing to, to get on top of, you know, um, I certainly didn't know I was suffering for a number of years. I would, I learned to drink at a very early age when I was a kid in the army because that's all we did, you know, back in the day. Um, we wouldn't think nothing of it because we were all super fit. Mm. You know, nice 30-inch waist back in the day with <laughs> my own hair and teeth. It was wonderful. Um, but as you get older, you know, sometimes you try and moderate what you're doing. And if... If there was any sort of like common indicator for me, I started drinking really heavily. But I just blame, I say blame, I put that down to all the stresses and strains of being a cop. Yeah. I joined the job very late in life. I was, I think I was 34 when I joined. So I'd had a bit of experience in, in sort of the various work places that I found myself in, from the military to close protection work and, and you know, all stuff like that. And yeah. I mean, uh, an example, I, I remember a wife coming home when I was sort of really starting to struggle. Now, how, Just to, to kind of pause into what Chris was saying, so how far after yes. um, then? It was... I, w I would suggest, so 2005 was the bombings. Uh, 2012? Wow. And the only reason Seven I can years. say that, to, to be quite specific... We were fortunate enough as a family, we went, went, went away on holiday to, to America. And we, we went about three years prior to 2012. And we were able this time to have three amazing weeks. And so in 2012, that made my little fella five uh, come, or six. And the other boys would have been sort of 13, 14 and probably a year younger than that. And I remember the wife didn't like to drive out in America, so I'd drive everywhere. And we'd had a particularly long day doing the theme park things. And my little lad came up to me and he just went, Dad. So I went, yeah. He said, you don't make me laugh anymore. You know, you just think, you little shit. <laughs> yeah. It's cost me an arm and a leg to be out here. So I yeah. just pushed him in the, in the pool in the villa, <laughs> which I found quite humorous. <laughs> 
Um, the other two boys come up as he's floundering because then I remembered he couldn't swim properly. <laughs> so, you know, it's like that moment of, oops, I said, you better get in and get him. So I pushed them in. And they go and they went, you know, Dad, Sam's right. You're not funny anymore. And I was like, oh, I got a bit angry. And then the wife come up to us and she said, you know, they're right. And I sort of threw... Oh, that must have been a lot to take Yeah, on. I threw a few choice words into her. And things were starting to turn over in my head a bit. And midway through the holiday, my mate, my partner from work rang me up. He says, when you get back, gal, he said, uh, you better get your grab kit because you're going on a search. And I don't know if you remember back in 2012, the, a little Welsh girl, April Jones, who was kidnapped and murdered. Uh, um, no. Um, uh, McKinliffe. Yeah. In the, it was in the river. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we were part of a search team that went and looked for her. So... I'm I was there when that oh, search really? team was there. Wow. So, yeah, that was, again, that was a multi... Did um, they find the killer? Oh, they've, they've got the killer. Yeah. He's, he's in jail now. Right. Um, we didn't find anything of April. Um, you know, and again, with, with that scenario, April's mum and dad were there every morning at the cell, uh, search cell to, to welcome in all the cops. So it was a multinational search team. You know, we get into the search cell sort of 6, 6.30 in the morning. A massive stretch of river, wasn't it? Huge. But we were also searching all the wooded areas and, and around, the, you know, Brecon and whatever mm. else. And, um, and, you know, clearly we would love to have found something of April just to give that back to the parents just for a bit of closure. Sure. So, you know, mum and dad would be there in the morning. We'd be out as long as natural daylight would allow us to be and we were searching in some pretty horrendous places. And we come back, and mum and dad would be there with a mug of tea and all that kit. And then, because it was a Christmas week, um, all April school friends came up to see us, and they'd give us Christmas cards and little presents. Now, bearing in mind, a lot of us up there were parents. So you got all that racing through your head. Besides everything else you've done, and this is just like the tip of the iceberg stuff. Um, and on the last day, we went to April school, because so we promised the kids we'd pop in and see them. And I had a mess about on the, the van and all that, and we gave them some kit. And the headmistress, I've forgotten her name now, we'd all been wearing like these pink ribbons for April. That's right, yeah. And all over all the road signs. That's it, everywhere yeah. you went. And, and the people on McKinley were just brilliant. I mean, we'd, we'd go into the shops afterwards looking like a sack of shit. We were so wet through, covered in mud and all that kit. And whatever we wanted, they'd just give it to us. They were so overwhelmed with, you know, they could see how passionate we were about looking for her. So, again, we did that and we come home and it was probably the quietest five-hour drive I've ever had with a, a hooligan van full of coppers. Yeah. Not yeah. one person said anything. Everyone was in, you know, stuck in their own sort of thoughts. And you get back to work, you de debug the, the van, you sort your kit out and you're back to work again. No one would say anything, you know. So, again, when you say post-traumatic stress, how does it sort of leap out and get you? And what is it? I, I really cannot give you an answer. I'm not, yeah. I'm not clinically trained. Mm. I've just got chronic post-traumatic stress. That was the mm. diagnosis given to me. So, you know, I know the symptoms that I had and that I've shown. And when I look at other people now, I can see, and it pisses a lot of people off because, you know, I don't say to them, oh, you've got it, because I, that's be, you know, completely wrong to do mm. that. However, I can see some of the traits and 
where I was. Um, and I sort of just say to me mates, my ex-colleagues, you know, we're always here if you need us to phone up. We go on our website, there's self-help sort of bits and pieces of information on there for you. Um, and we get it. Um, whereas sadly, the emergency services simply don't. And they won't ever admit to um, post-traumatic stress being an injury on duty, which it clearly is. Yeah. Because it would open them up to a lot of a lot of litigation and you know could you imagine if this was American I'd turn around to whichever part of the police yeah. service I was working with out there and said to them, Right, I've lost my job, yeah. I've lost everything, it's your fault. They'd be hit with a thousand shoots, yeah. yeah. You imagine the the dollars yeah. coming my way mm. because they hadn't had that duty of care. Yeah. So, you know, going off at a tangent a wee bit with, with regard to the charity we're not beating any part of the emergency services up all we're saying is you really need to look at your policies and your procedure around your men and women going out daily and dealing with trauma yeah my nephew's just he started in the force and not long into that he started to have to deal um He's, he's quite a sensitive lad anyway, mm. and I don't think he was prepared to see what he ended up starting to see. No. Um, you know, I mean, he's, he's only 21 now, and it's the, sa- it's the same for, you know, he's seen, obviously, you would end up seeing dead bodies and, yeah. and whatnot, classic, my phone going off. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and it's the same for my mate in the, in the fire service, yeah. you know, like, the stuff he's seen on, on ra- railways and yeah. stuff like that, and not that, but just in houses and that. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, no, nothing ever prepares you no. for, for that sort of stuff. You know, I mean, I, I've got so many variants uh, of incidents that I could give you. I mean, I remember we had a we had a job at Bethnal Green. Um, a young girl had thrown herself in front of a, a central line train. And she'd done a good job. No. She, you know. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Dead as a dodo, for want of a better word. Mm. But we couldn't get her from behind the train. She'd actually managed to be struck by the front of the train. And, you know, there's not a lot of space between the tunnel yeah. wall and the side of the tube. Yeah. She, she managed to get wedged oh between gosh. the tube the tube wall and the live rail. So, unfortunately, not only had she been smashed to pieces, she was also cooking Cooked. because we couldn't get the power source off quick enough. And this firefighter came down. He was probably he was the first one down. Um, and it, me and my mate, unfortunately, we were like the Birkin hair of the British Transport Police. Uh, we could go on shift and we could guarantee you that we would end up dealing with a dead body, yeah. part of a dead body, or someone who was about to become a dead body. Yeah. You know, it was just it was that sort of scenario. Yeah. And this poor fireman come down, and it was almost like a, how can I put it, a Scooby Doo moment as he's come down through down the escalators onto the platform area. He sort of come in, and it, because I could hear all this crashing and banging, I turned round, and this lad almost skidded. It was a bizarre thing to watch. Yeah. And then he nearly collapsed because the tunnel was the platform area was getting a bit smoky but that was due to the poor yeah. girl and I sort of looked at him and the colour just drained out of him yeah. and his mate come down and I said better get him upstairs so I took him upstairs and we managed to get this poor girl from under the well, from between the, the train and all that and I said to one of the other firefighters is your mate alright and he went yeah he says don't you remember that job we had like a little while ago and it was back we had a another one with that watch funny enough and I was like yeah and he said oh that was his nephew oh god and the same sort of scenario mm. and that was him and I think it wasn't long after that that I think he left yeah. the, the service so again you know what's normal for yeah. for us and I'll, I'll use the term loosely um, is clearly not normal for, for other people so, you know, whether you've been in the fire service, the ambulance yeah. service or the police, it's, especially for the, say, the roads police um, and the British Transport Police, you're dealing with multiple, sometimes, fatalities. Um, and it is just sadly normal yeah. to yeah. us. You know, the first fatality I dealt with, it looked and certainly didn't smell and sound anything like the grainy training video that I'd had. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I must admit, when I first looked at this person under the train, I went through every emotion that you possibly could. I didn't want to be there. I wanted yeah. to be sick. I didn't want to look, but that morbid curiosity Oof. gets you. Oh, and then you're being told, well, you've got to get down there and get amongst it and pull it out. And you're like, really? I want to go home. Yeah. yeah. Seriously. Um, and then you deal with it. And you're in shock. There's, there's no doubt. But you know what? The next one that I went to after that, it was normal. Yeah. And I've dealt it's with. It's crazy how the brain, yeah, mm. like works that quickly to like make that feel norm yeah. normalising. Absolutely. Um, you know, and 
every job that I went to thereafter, it, you know, they were, you can imagine someone being hit by a, uh, a mainline train that goes, say, from, whether it be the sea to sea, which is local to us, or you've got the main Liverpool Street South End. When someone gets hit by one of those trains or a freight train, there's not a lot left. No. Mm. With a tube, sometimes, I would suggest probably the majority of the time, a person often survives. Mm. Mm. But with life changing injuries. Yeah. Um, clearly, it's better if they're. They don't survive because mm. you haven't got part with the screaming and no, all that, mm. and that in itself again is something different. Fucking but hell, you man. just, you know, I just don't think people really like all the jobs that we have. Like most of us do not see behind the curtain of what are like well, less than one percent of us do on no. a daily basis, and no. that 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 that, that blows my mind. Like, um, what was it? I was watching. This isn't emergency services, but I was doing a bit of research for something else the other day, and it yeah. was about it was about the prison service and what the, oh, the right. wardens have to do. Yeah. And it was uh, it was a re- review of a certain prison um, about three years ago, and what they were going through these wardens just was just on a daily day day to day basis was fucking mental. Yeah. And, I mean they're not having to deal with fatalities, but I mean again it's still a small portion of our population who aren't doing what is fucking. We do a podcast. <laughs> it's not that's not <laughs> difficult, but is it? It might be stressful, like not this, but our other jobs. But it's nothing in the same <clears> level. <throat> And I was just thinking, he said, you know, what what does, you know, London Underground put in place for the drivers? The, do you know what? Uh, and again, it was always, it made us laugh because the drivers, whether it be on the LU or the main line, they are looked after so well. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And, mm. you know, to be fair, I mean, you imagine driving your train one day and... I think the best way to describe this would be, without being too graphic, would be um, you're driving your car down a motorway right. and you get a flight to the windscreen. Yeah. Yeah. You're driving your train at 90 miles an hour from Liverpool Street to South End. Sometimes yeah. it's not a flight, it's your windscreen. Yeah. Yeah. Same with the tube drivers. You know, Bear in mind that these guys can't turn left or right or stop immediately. There's yeah. a lot of weight behind them. And you know, when we turn up to, to jobs, one of the first things you have to do technically would you believe is breathalyzer driver right yeah figures you know common sense would say well yeah. i'll get that but really it's poor Bigger bloke, fish to fry yeah. woman yeah. has just technically ended someone's life mm. you imagine the shock that they've just gone through or gone through at that time and we turn up and you know very often the driver would have called the job in that's how we get notified unless a member of the staff saw it or a member of the public um and they're virtually taken away we get a um a first account from them just just to ensure that nobody was near the person or around the person or any other persons you know suggest that they might have been pushed or whatever and that it's a horrible thing to say it makes the job a bit easier because then you're dealing with a non-suspicious incident, yeah. and you can just get to work, get the yeah. person from under the train, off the train, not forever. forensics and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you don't got to worry about that. It's a suicide. Yeah, you know, the ambulance people will turn up, and sometimes fire service will turn up, um, and we can't pronounce. I say we. In my former career, I as a police officer couldn't pronounce death. It would have to come from a paramedic. They would turn up, put the old heart monitor thing yeah. on and clearly there would be yeah. a flat line and they would 
So, did you know that most of the time? Was it oh, like, was it a bit bleak? <clears throat> like everyone was like, "We're doing this because we have to." But yeah, uh, and do you know what? That must make it hard it, as well. It is because um, you know there was no there's no written rule to say that we, as a British Transport Police officer, should get Dan into the forefoot, which is like mm. if you imagine the running rails, yeah. that's the this what they call forefoot. It's the distance between the rails, right, okay. and pick up bits yeah. of a person or big bits and small bits. Yeah. It just, it's the accepted thing. Approximately, I know you can't put an exact sort of number on it, but like, how, how frequent was this happening? If I was to say you, uh, in one shift, we have three. In a shift? Oh, hold on, what, what, sorry. A night? A day. A day, sorry, so, what, what that was each? That was an exceptional, no, not every right, day, right, that was right, an exceptional right, right, um, right. shift. Um, an average week? An average week. You could have two. Oh, bloody hell, man. So, a couple of years ago... I just I presume think, it might be one every couple of months. Because no. you only ever think of your line, don't you? Yeah. Like, well, this you is know, it. And as a national sort of police service, I think... And I can't, I'm not going to say this is a, a, a precise quote and figure. I think there was 300, nearly 400 fatalities on a network nationally. So that's over one a day. Yeah, you know, Crazy. and those people clearly are in a in a bad place. Yeah, and you know to take your life in that manner. And again, I've seen all the different variants of mm. how to do it and be successful. Yeah. And for some people, to be not very successful and have life changing injuries as a result. Um, so yeah, it, it is just. Um, <laughs> Having a bit of a there a gallows sort of humour towards yeah. towards what you're doing. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we had say the shift where my mate and I we, we sort of had this third, you know three in a day. We got cancelled for the third one because obviously the, the two other ones that we've been to were quite messy. Yeah. And uh, we basically got home a bit sharpish, and our little British Legion club stand literally two minute walk from the station and three minute either way for both of us where we lived and we got in there and I think within 30 minutes we'd sunk about six pints yeah. <laughs> hadn't said a word to yeah. you know normally we have a mm. bit of a cuss and a curse and whatever yeah. and how then, do you rationalise that though you can't be, can you no and, and do you know what my mate said to me he went oh that was horrible wasn't it and I went yeah do you want another beer and we had another beer and went home yeah. and that was our had debrief for each other, yeah. as it were. So you know, um, it every situation has its own little story, you know. But then we'd often, after we dealt with a fatality, you'd have to go and deliver a death message as well. Oh fuck! No. So you've That's got a job as well. Yeah, yeah, because you know, unlike uh, I'll use the Metropolitan Police um, because they're such a big, big force. Of, I think at the moment they've got sort of some thirty thousand officers. Where for the British Transport Police, I think there's less than three thousand nationally. So to have specifically trained officers, what I call flows, which are like family liaison officers, they're very far and few between. So again, it's not right, but you would often having picked up all the bits and pieces of the deceased, put them in the mortuary, you know, dealt with all that, got personal belongings. You'd have to search the body or what's left of the bodies as well. 
um, and then once you'd established who that person was and where they lived, you'd then go to the home address. Same go. day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, as, qu- as quick as humanly possible. But surely you're, you know, surely you shouldn't be in a position mentally to be put on that extra... I don't think that's fair, is it? Like, it's... Do you know what I mean? To be having to deal with that, and then now you've got to go and deal with the family of the deceased as well. I mean, how can a human being like it's digest that? Yeah, it's a tough thing. I mean, for uh, I think it's quite a recent quote. Um, I've probably seen more deaf and disrupted bodies than your your average frontline. Infantry soldier, hmm. you know, has even with yeah. current, you know, or events over the last few years with with uh, you know the Gulf War and, and Afghan and all the rest, um, you know. So for guys, and I'll use what's now the rifles took over, you know, took our name the Royal Green Jackets. So this year alone, unfortunately, I think it's either forty-eight or forty-nine men from my old regiment have taken their lives through post-traumatic stress. That's this year alone. When you look at America, 22 cops, stroke ex-servicemen, take their lives a week. And what they're doing, I mean, there's a friend of mine, he's a retired um, lieutenant or lieutenant, whatever they call themselves, um, and he emails me on a regular basis and these boys and girls are going into work and clearly they're carrying firearms and they'll sit in a briefing and just take out their service revolver and blow their heads off. They feel secure in the environment they're in, but because they're in such a, a dark place, that's it. And they'll just take their lives there and then or they'll go to part of the car park within the sort of police Confined area violence, yeah. and, and do it there. So, you know, going back to what was asked earlier on, how, how does it manifest itself? Very often it doesn't, and you know it's just person could become withdrawn, um, drink a lot. Was your, yeah. was, your, was your wife sort of um, saying anything to you at this no. point? And was you know was there any kind of? Yeah, I think she started noticing a difference. Um, <laughs> she came home from work one day and said, "Size of me now, I'm the only one who clearly does cooking indoors." <laughs> she, she come home. And she went to the fridge to get some stuff out to do some cooking. And she opened the fridge and she, like, went into one. And I was like, what's the matter with you? All this fucking booze in here, all this, blah, blah. And I was like, what's the matter with you? It's just a drink. But when I look back at it now, it wasn't. I think all the room that was left in the fridge was for some butter and a bit sliced cheese. Some craft, I filled yeah, it up craft with beer. cheese singles. Yeah, I filled it up with beer, Jack Daniels, wine. And she, and rightly so, yeah, she yeah. freaked out. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I, at that time, though, I, for me, was just like, just stop being stupid, you know. Yeah. And again, I just turned around, it was an easy thing to do. I blamed it on the job because, you know, one minute I'm on my hands and knees looking for IEDs, for, you know, the threat of terrorism. The following day I'm looking after the royal family. I'm doing searches for the royal family. Um, you know, the next day I'm dealing with the general public. The day after that, I might have a stabbing to deal with. You know, you, you think of every sort of 
range or experience you can go through as a, as a police officer, then that's that was our daily routine. But it, it's it really, you're really rarely ever showing up to something that there's a positive event that's happened. It's always no, like, it's always it's, it's all high level stress yeah. constantly, yeah, isn't it? And it is, and again with with post traumatic stress, it's because you're on a regular basis, you're dealing with with trauma, and there's no easy way of dealing with it other than throwing it in that filing cabinet, <clears throat> excuse me, and trying to just forget about it. Yeah. Uh, and you move on. Um, you know, now I look back on the way that I was, um, I was horrible. My two eldest boys, uh, bless them, they took the brunt of it. You know, I was shouting and screaming at the wife yeah. and the kids, kids are kids. Yeah. But if my oldest lad said something, I'd be all over him. And then the middle lad, I'd be all over him. And I'd shout and scream at him. And I've brought something with me. I, I, I doubt if I'll be able to read it. I, there's two statements. And one's from my wife. Uh, and one's from my oldest lad. And when we do our presentations to the police, fire and ambulance or whatever else, we often, you know, with all the introductory bits and pieces. Yeah. And then um, one of our patrons is Graham Cole. He used to be on the bill. Yeah, played Tony Stamp. Mm -hmm. I've known Graham for blimey, some twenty odd years. We were real good mates, and that friendship only came about because I used to do extra stuff on the bill, store the firearm stuff and putting the doors in. And Graham will, and because Graham knows me wife and he knows me boys, and he would read um, these two statements, and he wouldn't have to do anything theatrical. He would just read them, and you could tell that he was getting upset because it he knew me wife and me kids. And then, you know, myself and Simon, the other co-founder, we would get up and go for our, our part of the presentation. And then I would refer back to the statements and I would say, you know, because everyone's going through this absolute elter-skelter ride of emotion. And, you know, people cry in our presentations. It's not our, our thing to go out and upset people, no. but because you're hitting certain triggers for them and it's a realisation. And I would just turn around and say, all oh, right, the, the statement from the wife of a sufferer well, chronic sufferer, um, that was my wife. And you, you're looking at people, and again, you're going through this whole range of emotion. And then when I tell them about the kid, some of them already got it, and I say, that's my oldest son. Now, for your eldest son to turn around and say, he hated you coming home, he mm. dreaded you coming home because of your temper, your violent screaming and shouting. I, mean, I was never physically abusive to my wife and children I say that in my hand on my heart but I was one ang angry badger Yeah. and it was often drink induced or you know I'd just come in and then I'd just see one of them and I would just let them have it I would shout and scream and you know my oldest boy was worried about mum and dad getting divorced and you know because you hear all these stories didn't you he was worried about the effect I was having on his brothers um, and clearly it was driving him away um, I look back on it now and again it's probably one of the, the key reasons that Simon and I Simon's a chronic sufferer as well from the stuff that he saw during the Balkans conflict and he saw some hor horrific stuff out there um, you know and I, I sort of look back now how, how did you meet? through the military right. we, we've known each other a number of years Simon come out of the parachute regiment as a captain um, and we'd have paths across through various sort of connections and whatever else. Um, 
and Simon was with me during my darkest times and even when I went to take my own life. Um, it got there. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. When I lost my job in 2014, it, yeah, I, I'd gone from being this... Was that losing your job in the police? Yeah. Yeah. I'd gone from being this extrovert to one horrible individual. I didn't want to be around people. I couldn't stand people. I was very short-tempered. Um, you know, I couldn't go out with a family. I couldn't use a, the public transport systems because of stuff that I'd seen. Um, and, you know, you're always training as well, um, especially on the old anti-terrorism side of life. And some of the stuff that we'd sat down and watched. Um, and again, it's, it's a manifestation of post-traumatic stress where it's like hyper-arousal and stuff like that. And it's not in a sexual sense. Yeah. It's yeah. You, you become so overly aware of what's going on around right. you. I can't go into a pub or a restaurant now as long as I can see a door, I'm oh, not too God, bad. Yeah. But I'm always checking people out. I'm always looking at the exit and entry yeah. points. You know, um, and the wife used to go mad because she said, it looks like you're out for a fight. Yeah, you can't unwind. And you, you yeah. can't. And it's, you know, going back to the little story when we was out in America, we, we broke down. We was going to Gatorland and uh, we broke down, thankfully, outside of quite a posh resident, uh, residence. However, um, to get another hire car was like some two hours away. And all of a sudden, I become very aware of all these cars just cruising by, young kids wearing colours, as they do over here. Mm. And I'm thinking, we're going to get turned over. Mm. Yeah. And so I'm there pacing up and down. I'm on the phone to the car ride company. And I was about 30 metres away from the car. And we've been there a couple of hours now. And this car pulled up alongside and the driver was wearing colours, but he was talking to my wife, and I come running over. <laughs> he sped off. Excuse me. She went nuts at me. She said, what was the matter with you? I said, what was he doing? And I've gone into one. Hmm. He was trying to help her. But you see me coming over like a born Stumbling in a china shop. Thought, yeah, and he, and he buggered off. Um, so, yeah, again, I didn't even know, but there's another sign, you know, um, that I was struggling. Um, the going back to daily routine in the job, I'd had uh, a particularly nasty uh, job down at Ilford, um, which started off very innocently. Um, we had a little police office on the station, and myself and my mate were just coming out, going to the vehicle parked outside the station, and this old deer had fallen down the last couple of steps on the, onto the platform. So we've just gone over to El and. Um, the station supervisor come out and he said, oh, it's all right, go leave it. He said, it's a station accident, I'll deal with it. And this guy come over, he went, yeah, he said, I'll, I'll see her fall down last couple of stairs. She didn't want any help from me. He said, uh, and thanks for doing what you're doing. And I was like, oh, cheers, fella, no worries. And then he walked away. Then me and um, Mick walked upstairs and we got to the top of the stairs and we heard this almighty bang. And we just looked at each other and was like, really? And then one of our little probationary cops come out. Sarge, Sarge, I think there's someone under a train. Uh -huh. So I was like, no shit, Sherlock. Because as we walked back down the stairs, if you can imagine the flights of stairs, a tunnel, it was just covered in body matter. And sort of got down onto the platform. The train had stopped about four or 500 yards down the track. 
and you just think oh, here we go again so I've called it in but you know you just go where's that geezer so I've gone into the sort of office the supervisor's office to have a quick look at the CCTV and it was a bloke who said thanks very much for what you're doing Jesus Christ. and you know you just think there was no sign what do you think <laughs> And that's right. it, you know, the only thing I thought of straight away, and it's a selfish thing, was like, A, we weren't around him, so no one could have accused us of pushing him. And mm. thankfully, on viewing the CCTV, you know, it's quite clear this gentleman took his own life. Yeah. So, again, when we've gone through the process of establishing the fact that, you know, he was deceased, we've got as much of him in the body bag as we could, um, put him in the local mortuary, um, and it's then you, you've got to go and deliver that death message and you know there's another one near Christmas and this gentleman uh, lived not far from here and went there knocked on the door and it was you know one of those calls or jobs that you you hated doing because all I could hear was the kids running at the door mum dad's home oh, blah blah fuck. and you just think that nah, and oh. what should happen? You should do should be two of you. Yeah. Because obviously it can be very distressing. Yeah. Um, and I was just on me Todd. And this kid opened the door, and straight away there's a copper in his front door, and he was young enough but wise enough to know that there was something wrong. Um, a lovely big ass. Uh, I'll never forget he went to me. Where's my fucking dad? And he was only about 10 or 11. So probably about the age of my oldest lad. And I went, is your mum in? And he went, where's my dad? Where, where's my fucking dad? And I'm thinking, it's bizarre. But as I looked over his shoulder on the, the hallway, I could see some family photographs. And this guy was clearly in that photograph because I had some idea of his. And then his other little brother come running up, who was probably about the age of my middle lad. And then just to top it off, the little sister came running out, yeah. was probably about the same age as my youngest boy. So they're all looking at me, and then mum put her head round the, the door, and she knew what had happened. Um, and so I've had to go in, explain to her what had happened. Then she asked if I could go and tell the kids what had happened to their dad. Fucking hell. And, you know, in between trying to get members of her family or the neighbours to come and sit with her, I'm now trying to explain to these kiddies that, you know, Dad ain't coming home ever again. It's probably the shittiest Christmas you're ever going to have. And I'm apologising for having to give them this, this bad news. And, you know, you're just thinking, how are these kids going to deal with yeah. with that? And I must have been there, because what, what you don't do, you don't give yourself a, a, a period of time. It That will take as long as it needs to take. And you leave them with the appropriate telephone numbers and your number should they want to call, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then she said to me, can you go and tell his mum? Well, so I like, yeah, all right. And she lived around the corner, about, so about half a mile down the road. And I pulled up in my, my police car and just sort of get myself ready to go and do the whole process again. Because there's no sort of strict... Why have they, you know, giving that message? You just, 
if there's an appropriate thing to say and do, you, you try and do your best. And I see a curtain go, and then the window opened, and this woman shouted out at me, it's your fucking fault, you killed him. And then she smashed the window closed, and of course, because of the noise of the window getting closed, all the neighbours all of a sudden like, what's going on, and the curtains are twitching. And she came flying down the stairs, and she opened the door, and I was about two foot off the front door. And she punched me square in the chest. Now, I was a little bit lighter than I am now, mm. but that punch was enough to rock me on my feet, and I sort of went back. And I stood there, and she went ballistic at me, absolutely ballistic, and smashed the door closed, and that was that. So I'm sort of thinking, right, I know that she lives alone. I've got to make sure, you know, I've got a duty of care towards her now. And she just told me there and then, fucking, you know, mm. fuck off, do one. Um, I don't want you near me. You've killed my son. So I was sort of like trying to take that on board. And then I got on the radio. And this is the job for you. So I said, right, can you show the second death message delivered at such and such time? Um, my control was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, all oh, right, is that, that matter all dealt with now? I said, well, yeah, until like, you know, tomorrow when we pick up the other bits and pieces and, and do what we've got to do to get the, the file put together for coroner and, and the rest of it. I went, okay, good. Uh, can you go to Romford Station? Uh, we've got a, what we call a, tic a ticket irregularity. Oh, someone's just trying to travel without buying a tra train ticket. And I'm like, yeah. So Bit of a gone, difference. Yeah, but that was what you did. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's it's a bizarre old bizarre old game, for want of a better word. So Gary, we we, we like we we it's so fascinating. We could go on different angles of this because I don't know. It's just something that you don't hear enough. Well, an, enough about or mm. about. Um, and before we talk about your um, you know your your, your the charity that you've you yep. started. Um, we were going to do top five facts yep. of PTSD. Okay. So, um, shall we t shall we do a couple of those now and then maybe move on? So. I think we can just throw a few in. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's just, in, in, you know, important that we just keep, you know. This is um, sort of, by no means, a, a top five list from any specific place. It's, it's yeah. Just a top five that yeah. I thought of might not be completely right. Yeah. Who knows. So we, we spoke earlier on about signs and symptoms, and these can literally come on years after that traumatic event or a series of traumatic events, and it's not, you know, something that might show itself immediately after when we spoke about the, the fight at a club or something yeah. like that. Um, it, sometimes it can take weeks, months, if not years, to, to manifest itself, and it, and it can come through uh, as an anxiety or a depression or in a form of flashbacks which I suffer right. lightly. Um, thankfully, I'm managing that. But it's every day I still have moments, night times. Thankfully, it's getting less now. But I went through a period where I was... My dreams and, and, and flashbacks were so vivid and real that I was being sick. Jesus. I didn't know that that was another side of post-traumatic stress. But I spoke to uh, a professor, some Greek chap... A couple of years ago, um, and he just laughed when I told him I was being sick because my wife thought I was back on the booze again, you yeah. know, being ill and all the rest of it. And he said, No, no, he said, That's quite a common thing. And I thought, I wish someone had told me. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. No one's so, exactly. Saying, yeah. And again, it's just another side. The, the, the list is endless in, in relation to the way PTSD yeah. can manifest itself. Um, now, apparently, 
there was uh, an American uh, psychological uh, association that said women were more prone to PTSD than men. Okay. And that goes to basically women that have been sexually assaulted, sexually abused. Mm -hmm. um, and clearly that is a very traumatic yeah. experience for that lady um, and, and clearly something that they will relive daily. Yeah. Now, for me, what I found out was that often to post-traumatic stress, there's, um, dare I say, a root cause where it all starts to, to manifest itself. So for me, dealing with all them fatalities and the stuff for the bombings and everything else I did, it was secondary. Because as a child, I was sexually abused. Now, I never told anyone. Um, and probably, I, I didn't tell my wife for years, well, <laughs> for absolutely years. Yeah. And we was at a, a, one of her sort of like team functions. And there was a guy who was a bit less compassionate than, than others. Yeah. And he said something about some kids. And basically, they brought it all on themselves about being abused. Oof. And I didn't even had a drink. And I went ballistic. Yeah, of course. And of course, when the wife finally caught up with us, I mean, I was going to knock this. I wasn't in the job then. Yeah. Um, I was going to kill this geezer, absolutely, because it just all sort of where it came from. I don't know because I hadn't told anyone. Yeah. You know, uh, not even my parents or my siblings. Um, and just this absolute outburst of rage, pure rage. Yeah. And when I went through my sort of therapy, it then became quite apparent that. There is often something in your in your past, such as being sexually abused or whatever, that will be the catalyst for something that might seem quite trivial to, to bring on, you know, the post-traumatic stress. Oh, and in yeah. my case, you know, the, um, when I got diagnosed by this, uh, he was a top forensic shrink in the country, funny enough. He sort of said, um, I don't like doing this, he said, but when we put scales on things, if there was a scale of one to 10, he said, you've clearly fallen off into the hundreds. He said, that's how bad you are. And I just laughed God. at him because I thought, I'm not. Yeah. I know I've had me a few moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, you know, you need a trauma-focused therapist to be able to help you manage your thoughts and your processes. Yeah. And, and they can help you because PTSD can't be cured. Um, it can be managed. Uh, and I think that as and when they do find a cure for PTSD, it'll be like the cure for for cancer. Mm. It will be there and it'll be an amazing thing. I can't see it happening in my lifetime, but I really hope that it can be. You it's know. so deeply psychological. Isn't oh, it? it's it's incredible. Um, so yeah, you know, you, you look at the way PTSD is and, and what it does, and it's not something you'll ever get over. It'll always be there. And for me, growing up as a kid, having been abused on a number of occasions, I become very protective towards my brothers and my sister mm. because I was only a baby myself. Yeah. And my concern was as the big brother, and I was probably only about six or seven, I'd let them down because I didn't protect them and I never knew whether it had happened to them. Yeah. Um, and then I just went through my life, whatever I did, I was looking out for everyone else. You know, I'd always find myself or myself in you know, positions where I was sort of like the focal point. So as a lad, football was my thing. You know, I grew up playing football with Tony Cotty, Tony Adams, Johnny Moncur. No. It was all the same. We all played at the, the same sort of levels. 
I played semi-pro football before I actually just ran away and joined the army. Um, but I was always like captain and blah, 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 blah. And where I've gone in life and whatever I've done, I've always had that sort of, I don't know why that position, mm. but I've always looked out for everyone. But, you know, as we said earlier on, you're just putting yourself on the back burner. Yeah. yeah. So there's sort of like three incidences wow. of, of your top five. So there you have it. Part one um, of our um, episode with Gary Hayes um, talking about his experiences with PTSD ongoing. Um, yeah, I don't know how you guys are feeling right now, um, but it's, it's pretty intense, right? The things that he's seen. I'm sure you're, they're probably feeling exactly how we felt yeah. last night when we recorded that, which was, you know, there's some. it was eye-opening, it was thought-provoking, it was... It was sad. It was tragic. It's it's he's a roller coaster, right? Definitely. And uh, and and he's he's got some spirit, which you know comes across as well as as I'm sure you're you're aware. Um, part two um, will be out shortly, so um, keep an eye on your your listening device to see when that pops up. And the easiest thing to do there is just to subscribe. Click to, subscribe. Once you once you subscribe, then uh, you don't have to worry about it. You don't you have can, to worry about it. We know it's on your mind. And then it just pops up on your listening device. And if you don't want to listen to that episode, then you can just delete it. But it gives you the choice. So, um, yeah. So, it's part two will be out soon. See you in a little bit. It's a drunken soiree in the within. Chris and Stu present Our Core Listing, the podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save 